0: Hello, and welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit And This morning, it's Philippians chapter 3. It's where we are today. As Maddie already read, Philippians chapter 3, those verses 17 through 21. What we're going to do is uh, just go back through line by line. Uh, and unpack these scripture verses we've looked at. Our series and our study in the book of Philippians has been entitled Extraordinary. And together, looking at the words here from the Apostle Paul, we are discovering how Jesus leads us beyond the limits of an ordinary life. I don't think there's one person in this room that would prefer to just live a basic ordinary life. Within uh, each one of us, despite how ordinary our life can be, I think there's a truth to the human condition that deep down within every one of our hearts, there is this this cry, and maybe we've silenced it. Usually as we get older and things get hard, sometimes we quiet it even more because we don't believe it's possible. But there is within all of us this natural desire to live beyond what's ordinary, to experience life the way God has promised. And Philippians is all about what that looks like. Written by Paul from a prison cell. And Paul is even embodying the message of this book. He's not an ordinary prisoner. While everybody else is in jail sulking about their consequences, Paul is in jail thinking about other Christians and thinking about how can I encourage the church at Philippi. He writes another letter uh, to the church in in, uh, Colossae. And so just this extraordinary life that Jesus has on offer for you and me. Uh, extraordinary in what he promises. So yeah, it's been a good time going through this. we got about, I don't know, five or so weeks left. Uh, I'm preaching this morning from the title. If you'd like to take notes, the title of the message this morning is Walk This Way. And I have that Run DMC, uh, was that Aerosmith guy's song in my head? I don't want that in my head right now, but it's there. Um, Maybe the band will close with it. And that's, I think that's, isn't that how you get rid of songs in your head? You sing them? So maybe we'll close with that. Just kidding. That's, that's not going to happen. All right, walk this way. Uh, let's pray together, and we'll, we'll go back through these verses we looked at. Heavenly Father, uh, God, it's, I'm so thankful to be here. Um, that You have blessed me, blessed us with this opportunity to gather together right now as your church family We don't ever want to take it for granted, the joy of what you have accomplished for us, Jesus. You have reconciled us to to you through the cross. You have saved us, forgiven us of our sin. You have brought us back into relationship with you. And in doing so, you've brought us into a family. And God, I'm really thankful for this family, for this church that you've been building, that you are building And um, we know today you have some building to do, God. You're able to look into parts of our lives that nobody else sees. Parts of our lives, God, that we might not even see. We know as you look into our lives this morning, we know there are places, God, as we said, that you want to take us. That we might not even be aware of, but God, we, we just come to you together with a unified desire that says we want to go there, God. We want to go where you're leading us. If it's deeper, if it's farther, if it's greater in its perseverance, wherever it is, God, we we invite you to have full authority in this time and in this place to have your way to do your work in our lives. Holy Spirit, we ask you to speak to us this morning. We're not here to listen to a man's sermon. We're here to encounter the voice of the living God. And that takes a miracle. So God, I pray for you to speak to us, for you to be heard loud and clear. And Jesus, would you be at the very center of everything that's happening here this morning? Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, as, you, as you probably know, kind of the custom I have in, in starting each, each talk here on Sunday mornings, I'd like to begin with a question. Uh, this question will have to entail some unpacking to it, but the question this morning is simply: Where are you going? Where are you going? Brittany asked me this question this past Thursday. Actually, husband, have you ever been asked this question when you're driving? For where are you going? Right? I know where I'm going. Right? Uh, this you know every Thursday it's our weekly date night. We've had to miss it the past couple weeks. We weren't allowed out in public, so we couldn't really date night out in public. And date night's less romantic when your kids are running around as well. Um, but we got to revisit date night this Thursday. Ash and Roberto are, are um, I almost want to say delegated babysitters, but they volunteer. Um, and they come over every Thursday. Ashley and Berto come over, Uncle Ashley and Uncle Berto, to watch the kids. And we go to our same you know, uh, spot every week. We get dinner, we catch up. Um, and, and this week it was one of the, we've had this happen a couple Thursdays where like we're done with dinner, great conversation, and we're kind of like, What are we gonna do now? Where are we gonna go? Um, The mall closes super early, and even if it was open, what are we gonna do there? Except what we always do, which is walk around and end up at Chick-fil-A for dessert or something. and so one of our favorite things to do on our date night, and I don't know if this is like a new thing because we have kids now and we can't really go back home because they're there, is we just like to drive around and listen to music. It's like a, a you know, it's, a, it's our thing, you know, driving around, listening to music, whatever new album's out, we kind of take turns, you know, it's kind of a contest, who's like, who's better with the aux cord contest, you know, that contest. And uh, this past Thursday, it was, she asked me this question as I kind of, Wanted to pull off the normal route, which is like federal. and We come down Spanish River. We do like a loop around Boca, drive through FAU kind of area. And I made a turn off federal, and I was like, let's drive through the intercoastal homes of Boca. You know, let's enjoy the views of where we live. Um, well, not on the intercoastal, certainly, but the city, you know. So we drove around kind of that area, and there came to that point where it was like, where, where are you going? Where are you taking me? Um, Now, here in this passage, Paul, in a sense, I think, is asking us this question. I want you to imagine for a second, it's not a roadway to some back intercoastal homes, but it's the course of your life, and you're behind the wheel. And Paul's riding shotgun, and he says, where are you going? When it comes to the path you're on, When it comes to the course you're on, in fact, the word that that Paul uses in this passage is the word walk. He's talking about how we're walking. It's a a biblical metaphor to describe the steps that we're taking, the rhythms of our life that are setting the course and the direction of where we're going. It's verse 16, 17, and 18 that Paul uses this word. And and, and maybe a, a better way to ask the question where you're going is how are you walking? What, what, what sort of steps are you taking? Again, this biblical idea, especially about being a Christian, there's so much in the New Testament about walking in the newness of life, walking worthy of our calling. What is a walk? Well, it's, it's steps, and, and that's certainly about your life, right? We take steps based on what we believe. We make decisions based on certain outcomes and certain desires. And Paul is leading us in this passage to evaluate where we're going, how we're walking. Um, he even uses, it's interesting in this passage, he uses kind of two walk ways, two courses to contrast each other. Did you see that in the passage? One is a course or a path that is common and crowded. We see that there. He says, there are many who walk. It's verse 18. There are many who walk, he says, as enemies of the cross. It's a common and crowded path that a lot of people are on. And he tells us sort of, even grieving as he says it, that this is a a course that leads to destruction. It's pretty heavy. Now he contrasts that and describes another course in life, another pathway, another walkway, that is instead of common, it's uncommon and uncrowded. He, He even says this, mark those, in verse 17, he says, mark those who are walking this way. Isn't that interesting? Like it's so rare to see someone walking down this path towards life. He's like, mark it down. That's what he says. Note, take notes of the person you see walking the right direction that leads to life. Now, Paul isn't making these concepts up. He's grabbing this from the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus speaking himself. As Paul has studied and learned of Jesus's teaching, I'm sure Paul has been inspired here by Matthew seven thirteen and 14, where Jesus talks about the same thing. He says, enter in your life, enter by the narrow gate, He says, for wide is the gate and broad or crowded and popular is the way, the walkway that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because, and here's why many people go the popular way, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. You see, the Christian life is popular in theory, but it's difficult in practice And it's because of that reason that the crowded path is the one that leads to destruction. And Jesus here talks about a more narrow, difficult path that leads to life that he says very few find. In fact, mark them down when you see them. This is what Paul is getting at when he's having us think about the way that we walk. The direction that we're going, the decisions that we're making, those decisions are steps that are charting a course for your life. I want to make it clear to you this morning that you are going somewhere. You're headed towards something. You're on some kind of life path. The question is, what is it? Now, I like the idea of walk, like that concept that Paul uses often to describe the Christian life. And even kind of this question I asked earlier of how are you walking, I I, I can relate to this. If you think about walking, you know, we all have a a walk. Like, I mean, like, physically now. Like, um, I can, like, most of my friends, even in this room, I can identify them from hundreds of yards away just by the way that they walk. You know, some people walk with the, like, kind of the bow leg thing, got the in leg thing. You know, some people kind of have, like, the bounce, you know, the bounce walkers. You know, I like those. Then you have, like, slow walkers at the mall, and you're like, can you move? All right, like, there's no horn here, okay? Like, you have, this, you have the fast walkers. My wife, she could, like, if I ran a marathon and she walked it, she would beat me, okay? Like, she walks so fast, I'm always like, we'll be in I'm like, hey, okay, slow down. Okay, I look really slow right now, all right? Um, you know, the, the idea here is that you can identify someone based uh, according to how they walk. You can be like, that person's from New York, you know, the way they're walking through the streets like that. And Paul is saying the same is true of the Christian life, that your walk, it identifies you. Your walk should cause people to understand that there's something unique about you. Now, Paul, in in asking us this question, and especially in this passage, it's really cool. Uh, Paul in this passage is almost, we talked about how he's like riding shotgun in our lives. Paul is sort of serving as a navigator. If you think of your life as a road trip, Paul is going, hey, are you going the right way? That's the question he's leading us to ask in this passage. Are you on the narrow path that leads to life, or are you on a path that is self-destructive and will lead to destruction? Uh, And the reality of, of, of our need for this is that we all have a propensity. We need navigators in our life, by the way. You need more than just you in the car behind the wheel. Because every one of us has a propensity to veer off course, don't we? We have a propensity to get off the narrow path when things get difficult, when temptation is calling us this way or that way. Veering is our default, like a misalignment in a car, the sin nature. We can never assume that each of us today, we've woken up perfectly on course. I'm here at church, right? I must be on the right course. Here's the real question. What steps are you taking this week? What course is being set with your decisions you see the idea is this and this is why we so need community this is why we need other eyes on the road of our life this is why we need other people to be uh, aware of our blind spots you know driving have blind spots. you need people to be like hey am I good you know and the reason is because we have this tendency to veer we need regular and ongoing course correction we need people who come alongside and say hey no come on, come back and maybe you're in a season right now where you have just been driving so low and you don't even realize how far off course you are. And that's the gift of what the church is meant to be. Not to backhand each other when we go off course, but to say, hey, me too, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. But here's the good news. We have a good shepherd, right? And he leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even when we get off course, I think of my daughters who, you know, one of the most you know, common ways that we can entertain ourselves when we've been locked in a home for an extended period of time. Just the other day, it was like, let's go on a walk. We're going to go on a walk around the neighborhood. Um, and it sounds joyous, you know, a walk outside, but you're really like herding cats, you know, And you're hoping they stay in the wagon, you know, but Penny, you know, she wants to get out. She wants to be on her feet. Evie's on her roller skates, and and Judah's on his bike. And so Penny, she she just follows wherever they go. And so part of my job is to make sure she stays out of the path of destruction, keeping her on the sidewalk, because she will naturally sprint into the road. And that's a lot like what God does for us. He doesn't get angry at us when we run into the road, but he loves us and wants to protect us and bring us back on course. And here in this passage, it's like he's using Paul to do that. Uh, If you remember the context here, Paul has previously, he's poured out his heart. He's given like his autobiography of who he is and what his heart is for Jesus. He's openly unveiled the makeup of, of his heartbeat for God. And now he's going to begin to invite people into that same pathway. So let's look at how Paul does this. Let's look at how Paul seeks to sort of help us in course correcting our walk in life. There's a few things that he leads us to do. You can write this first one down. We see it in verse 17. Paul leads us to walk in the way first of active discipleship. This is the walkway we want to be on. This is Paul coming alongside of us as we veer into the road. He says, no, come here, come back. I'm navigating. I'm bringing your alignment straight. As a follower of Jesus, you've got to make sure that you're walking in the way of active discipleship to Jesus, a student of Jesus, an active follower of Jesus, not a passive follower. I said a prayer one time, I go to church, but an intentional, active student of the Lord Jesus. Walk in the way of active discipleship. Now, notice the way that he says to do this. Look down at verse 17. Paul says, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have for us a pattern. This is really interesting. Uh, You know, there's nothing like an example. Paul realizes that. Uh, And and Paul here is describing himself. He understands that, that humans, all of us, we are creatures of imitation. We're creatures of influence. Uh, whether you like to admit it or not, there is some pattern, there is some example that you're following right now. I know as Americans, we like to think that I'm individual, I'm independent, nobody influences me but myself. That's just not true. Um, we, we are creatures of habit and imitation. I mean, even, the easiest example of this is just like our clothes right now. Like The clothes you're wearing are culturally influenced. There's a reason why you didn't come in with your bell-bottom jeans on, for example, and your platform shoes. Maybe you did. That's coming back. That's cool if you do. It's all good. You're welcome here at Solace with your bell-bottom jeans, okay? But, but basic things like that are influenced by our culture. We're all being influenced. So the question that we're led to ask here is whose example are we following? What patterns do, is my life adopting? Okay? If you have a preferred news network to tune into, you have an example you have an influence in that. If you have a preferred political talking head and a YouTube channel, whatever it may be, we need to, I think, first stop and step back and realize what Paul is saying here, that we are humans. We are creatures of influence and imitation. We've got to be aware of that. We can't blindly assume that I'm my own influence only. And Paul, in in recognizing that, he's saying now, with that as a truth, he says, follow my example. Now, that's a pretty bold thing to say. I don't know how quick I am to say that. Anybody else? You know, like, yeah, I could have wrote that verse. <laughs> Follow my example. Now, we got to make it clear here. When Paul is saying this, he's not being egotistical. He's not being self-confident. Paul doesn't think that he is some perfect example to mirror every decision. In fact, earlier in this chapter, do you remember what he said? He goes, I'm not perfect. He's like, he's like listen, don't, don't, don't get it twisted, All right, I haven't arrived. Now, Paul, in saying this idea of following my example, it's similar to what he says in 1 Corinthians 11.1. In this passage, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's not simply saying, you know, don't follow Jesus. This is not what he's saying. This is what I, I grew up thinking this meant. Don't follow Jesus. All follow Jesus. You just follow me. And sadly, there's still some like discipleship methods like that in the church today. Don't follow Jesus. It's okay. Just follow. I'll follow Jesus for you. You follow me as I follow. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, join me in following Jesus. That's what he's saying. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow the way that I'm going, follow the course that I'm going. Uh, And that that phrase, imitate me, is what some of your translations might read there for verse 17. Join in following my example. Literally can be translated let's imitate the right way together. And Paul isn't saying that he's the only example of this. He's like, and note those who so walk, as you have for us a pattern. He's like, there's, there's plenty of other great examples. Let me say this uh, there's no substitute for a good example. There's no sermon that can substitute for a good example. There's no lecture that can substitute for this. There's no, you know, self kind of driven learning. Um, each of us we need good examples in our life we need concrete examples of the right way to go and also people need our example it's one of the most intimidating things about parenting right being watched at all times by your kids you know the, the what's the old saying do as i say not as i do that's not true and if you have kids, you'll find out. You're like, why do you keep doing that thing even though I'm saying to do the opposite? And you're like, maybe I do that. Oh, I do do that. Oh, you're a creature of imitation, right? It's just, listen, there's no substitute for this, for, for having a good example, for setting that example. And again, what Paul is calling us to in this passage is this example of active discipleship. That is, that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, as I follow Jesus... As I pursue Jesus, I'm not pursuing Jesus perfectly. That's not what it takes to be an example. But Paul says, I am pursuing Jesus passionately. That is a good example. You don't have to be a perfect example, but be a passionate example. I'm following Jesus, and Paul is saying, come and do that with me. Come follow this way. He'll talk in a second about another way that we could be going. Uh, And again, the idea here is is being intentional as a disciple of Jesus. And we, we unpack this a lot. Uh, here at Solus, wanting to kind of rework what we think about when we hear the word discipleship. And it can mean a lot of things. It's kind of a catch-all word. Um, It can mean a certain kind of mentor relationship between two people in the church. Sometimes it can just be used. Unfortunately, I feel like, you know, a word gets used to mean so many things that it doesn't mean anything anymore. Like where it's like, oh, we did a class and we studied Ruth Discipleship. It's like, okay, that's fine. Okay, it's discipleship. I get it. Like, you know, a bunch of Christians went to play top golf. Discipleship. It's like, okay, I don't know, actually. Okay. Like, like, well, someone read a verse. Okay, discipleship. It's like, sometimes this is just one of those words that just can get so often um, overly used to where we, we miss the meaning. Now, in its simplest form, discipleship is about following. In, in Jesus' day and age, in Paul's timeline, It's about coming under somebody's way of life. And we have even talked about a a nice substitute for the word discipleship, for us to think about this as followers of Jesus, is the word apprenticeship. It's being apprentices of Jesus. When you apprentice under someone, you're in relationship with them to learn their ways, to adopt their ways, and live in their ways. And, And this is what it means, let me say this, this is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus, to do what Paul's saying, follow Jesus with me. It's not some like elite, we talk about this too, it's not some like elite Navy SEAL category that you graduate to when you've served in church for X amount of years and you've read enough of the Bible, you've gone from believer to volunteer to disciple. You made it, and you wear a badge that says disciple. Andrew, how you doing? Nice to meet you. No, no, no. no. Discipleship is what Jesus invites everyone into, especially those who have professed faith in Christ. Salvation, being saved, being born again through the cross and the work of Jesus is simply a doorway into discipleship. It's a doorway into being a student of Jesus. What discipleship says is that for a long time I've had other influences dictating my walk in life. I've had other examples that have set the patterns that I've adopted in life, the thought patterns, the behavior patterns. But I recognize that Jesus is Lord and I'm going to follow him instead. I'm going to be his disciple. Now, the key thing that Paul is saying, and it's interesting, right? Because he's saying this to Christians. He's telling Christians, follow Jesus. Because he knows it's not our default position. He knows we don't naturally wake up into, into discipleship with Jesus. It's a discipline. That's what, by the way, the word disciple comes from that same word, Discipline. It's being a student of a certain field. Now, what does active discipleship look like? You might have heard these three expressions that we've used from time to time here at Solis. This is kind of like our framework to describe what we're after together as you know, it's pretty crazy to think about this. Like we are 21st century South Floridian Christians, individuals, we're following a first century rabbi. Like, we're here on Sunday morning because we're like, that first century rabbi was pretty amazing. And we identify as Christians. We, we gather here and we study the Bible because we really believe that though we're here in the 21st century, that first century Jesus of Nazareth, he's Lord. And I want to learn his way, I'm going to apprentice under his way because we believe he's alive. And just as he called his disciples 2,000 years ago, he's still calling and speaking to us, calling us to follow him. And we think it looks like this. This is just a general summary of what it could look like. First, it involves being with Jesus. We're talking about, again, being active. So if I'm actively following Jesus, that means that there is some rhythm in my life where I am actively with him. This is the first thing Jesus called the disciples to. He called them to be with him, that they might just be with him. It's relational proximity. It's an exchange of presence. It's face-to-face, just as Moses knew God as a friend, face-to-face. This is what we're called to first as disciples. Now, what this looks like as a Christian today, I would say, is prayerful intimacy. It's communing with God in prayer. I've got to be active in following him, first by knowing him through prayer. Prayer is where I make all that I, I have known to God. I bring it before him in honesty and vulnerability And I receive all that I know of him through his word. And I say, God, speak to me about you. It's communion. So there's got to be that sense in which I'm actively with him. That's discipleship. You you know, um, we're not following Jesus if we're not knowing him, if we're not with him. There's got to be also a rhythm of learning from Jesus. Teach me your ways, sensei. That's the idea. Remember the disciples saying, Jesus, would you, Lord, teach us to pray? This, you know what this takes a posture of? Humility. This takes a posture that says, even though I might have memorized the whole Bible, I still have a lot to learn, believe it or not. Knowing about the Bible and knowing verses in the Bible doesn't mean that I've learned it all. In fact, some things we need to learn in that case is, is how to apply it. How do I actually do these things? And so we come under the teaching of Jesus. We spend time in God's word. We make sure that God's word is clarifying what's true about God and life. And then there comes this point where I seek to walk like Jesus. Where we start to live and actually practice the way of Jesus by the power of the spirit. We adopt the things that Jesus adopted. We receive them into our life. So Jesus lived in community. We're going to walk that way. We're going to live in community. Jesus would often withdraw to a solitary place to pray, and he needed to be alone with the Father. So I'm going to walk like that too. I'm going to be alone with the Father. Jesus did this thing called Sabbath rest. So every now and then, I'm going to take two weeks off and not preach, you know, because God's going to force me. But, you know, think about it. What are the ways that Jesus is calling you to walk? I mean, we get it in his word, but it's by the power of the Spirit that we start to live in his way. So much so that, get this, that people look on at us, and it was in Antioch that... The followers of Jesus were first called Christians. Wow, you're, you remind me of Jesus. I know that you're a Christian, not just because you have a Jesus fish on your car, but I know you're a Christian because of the way that you walk. It's displaying. So, so Paul is advocating first for walking in the way of active discipleship. Again, he says, follow my example. As I follow Jesus, don't be a passive follower of Jesus. Spiritual formation doesn't happen on accident. We don't become all that God is calling us to be on accident. It's a work of God's spirit active in my life, and it's a work of my spirit being active to pursue him and follow him. And as I follow him, the good promise of scripture is that he promises to form me. He says, you do the following, I'll do the forming. You follow me and watch me make and transform you but we've got to be active in that now uh, paul says this in the next verse in verse 18 did you see this he says that many walk of whom i've told you often he says and now i even tell you weeping so now he's contrasting following jesus with another way of walking here's the other way to walk he says there are many who walk the popular way and they walk he says this as enemies of the cross of christ this is interesting So, Paul's like, first, there's the way of following Jesus. And then he describes the antithesis of that. The contrast of that is walking as an enemy of the cross. Now, I want to submit that the first thing that this is implying is is first, Paul is saying that the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. That's what he has to be saying. If not walking in the way of Jesus is walking as an enemy of the cross, then certainly walking in the way of Jesus, it looks like not being an enemy of the cross, but a friend of the cross. We could say that following Jesus looks like a cross-shaped life. Following Jesus, that idea again, we talked about active discipleship, is the way of the cross. Paul is saying this, you can write this down, walk in the way of cross-centeredness. The cross-shaped life. He says there are some who don't walk this way and they're enemies of the cross. But he's reminding us that, the, that a Christian is someone exclusively at the very center of the life of a Christian. Is not what they've done, but it's what Jesus has done. The cross has to be at the center. And it's got to be, let me, let me say this, it's got to be regularly brought back into the center. And just because we wear crosses, it doesn't mean we're cross-centered people. Just because we have looked to the cross at one point for our identity doesn't mean we are right now a cross-centered person. Our our tendency is, again, to veer away from a cross-centered life. Um, We see this all throughout scriptures, this sort of idea that following following Jesus means like you're a cross person. Like you're all, not just the jewelry, but like in in reality, in the deepest parts of you. Uh, Here's what Paul says in Galatians 6.14. This is like the cry of of the heart of every Christian. God forbid that I should boast. Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is so interesting what Paul says here. He's like, the thing I boast in in my life, the thing I brag about, the thing that I I rejoice in is Jesus and his cross. It's the cross. It's at the very center of my life. The idea here is first that it's at the center of my identity. I don't see myself through the lens of my performance. I see myself through the lens of the cross. The cross speaks the truth about who I am and who I am to God. I see myself through the lens of the cross. Now, let me ask you, what have you been looking to for your identity? What markers and and measurements and what things that, that you've been doing well or what things that you've been doing wrong have become what's most true about you rather than what Jesus has done? on the cross, becoming sin on your and my behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. It's a cross-centered identity. God forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross. But notice that it's also a cross-centered lifestyle. This is really interesting. By whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is the Christian life. It's not just I go, Jesus, I'm so glad you've been crucified for me. But to truly encounter the cross also is to respond to Jesus' invitation, which says, come die with me. He said this, we know this, right? In Matthew 16, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Uh, Later on in in Galatians, or earlier in Galatians 2, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Notice this, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives me in me the Christian life and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's my identity, it's who I am before God, but the cross is also how I identify as someone that needs to regularly die to self, be crucified with Christ, the cross shaped life. Now, tragically, as Paul says, notice what he said there in verse 18, he says there's many who are hostile towards the cross. He says, there are many of whom I have told you often, and now, notice this, I even tell you weeping. There's many people, and he's saying this, that this is their posture in life. They're not friends of the cross. They haven't found their identity in the cross. They're not bearing their own cross. But they are enemies of the cross. They're hostile. The idea here is the message of the cross. This isn't, by the way, just a 2021 thing, okay? This has been around since the cross has been around. It's an offense. They're enemies of the message of the gospel. Uh, Just a couple things that I think provoke this. Why why is there in the human heart even, the fallen human heart, why is there this natural opposition towards the cross? Unless, of course, the Holy Spirit is softening you towards the cross. And and I want to say the reason is because the cross... It offends the worst parts of us. The deepest things within us that we don't want to be true are confirmed through the cross. And people don't like that. People don't like to hear that. Here's a couple of things that the cross confronts in humanity the cross confronts our spiritual poverty, that hurts. The cross says you need a savior. The cross says you don't have enough in your spiritual account to buy your way to God. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the what? poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who come to the gates of heaven empty-handed, acknowledging I don't have what it takes. I don't deserve to be as close to these gates as I am. I'm spiritually Poor. And in fact, this is actually a really nice way to say it. Poverty is up there because it's a P word. If these were all D words, the word would be depravity. I could have done like de I don't know, okay. But that, that, and basically what I'm saying is this, that's the biblical description of the extent of our spiritual poverty. Not only is it that I need Jesus to die to pay the way for me to be right with God, but it's actually the depravity of my own sin that put him on that cross. I'm fallen. The, the gospel confronts the inadequacy of man to save himself. No amount of church-going, religious adoption, no matter of, of praying, no matter of performing can justify us before the holy God that we've sinned against. That's why there's many people who are hostile towards a message that says you don't have what it takes. Culture is the complete opposite. No wonder why it's so popular. What is co- all culture's doing is stroking the pride, the natural pride of the human heart. You are enough. I, can, I see Christian Instagrams posting that. You're perfect the way you are. Don't let anyone tell you different. What about Paul? Can Paul tell you different? Can Paul say that you're not perfect the way you are? There's major inadequacies in and of yourself. God loves you. You don't lose that. You're made in his image. You have value. You have worth through the creator, but you have sinned. You and I have sinned against the holy God, and we stand before him guilty and worthy of his justice for our sin. The cross says, it's a good message, but it can be often an offensive message, we need Jesus to die to rescue and save us. I think another reason why it's also, the poverty thing gets confronted in the human heart is because it's like, okay, fine, you know, I'll admit that I need some kind of religious path to get to heaven, I'll admit that I don't have, you know, secular humanism isn't enough, and I'm not enough, but does it have to only be Jesus, You know, there's so much wisdom in this path or that path or this teacher or that teacher. And that may be true, but here's what you don't have in any of those paths. You don't have atonement for sin. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. No matter how much religiosity is involved, um, we need a Savior. We need Jesus. The good news is we have a Savior. The good news is, 2 Corinthians says that even though we were poor, God who had everything and was rich, he became poor for our sake that we could become rich in him. Amen? He's made the way for us to be saved. But there's a, con- there's a confrontation that happens through the message of the cross with the human heart. It confronts our spiritual poverty. It also confronts our propensity. Our propensity. The word propensity, this is the definition. It means a natural tendency to, be- to behave in a certain way. That's a Propensity. Jesus, let me say this, Jesus will confront your natural tendencies to behave in a certain way. When culture is saying, hey, just do you. Just, be, just do you. There's only one you. You're not, there's no copy or something, right? Just do you, man. While well, well, culture is magnifying self, Jesus is calling us to crucify self. Well, culture is saying just run with your propensity, run with your tendency. Whatever natural behaviors that you you live in, the gospel says those are the behaviors that are going to destroy you and those around you. There's a biblical word for it. It's the word repent. Change your way. Turn from your sin and trust in the cross. Come the way of the cross. And while you're coming there, pick up your cross and die to self Of course, that's a contrast, that's an offense to the cultural message of self-exaltation. And then lastly, priority. The the gospel confronts what we prioritize in life, certainly in this culture. uh, This was a culture where, you know, at the very center of the universe was Caesar's palace, was Rome. The very center of the universe was the rule and the reign of the emperor. And the gospel says that the center point of the world in history, it isn't a place in Rome, it isn't a place in Washington. The center point of history in the world is a hill in Jerusalem where Jesus died on the cross. When it comes to what matters most, what's at the center of God's priority, it's a cross. And it should be at the center of our lives as well. Now, I want to show you this. This is what 1 Corinthians 18 says. It says that the message of the cross, this message, that confronts our poverty, our propensity, and it confronts even our priorities. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God. This message that tends to offend is the very power of God. And I wanna just say this about what Paul is saying. It can be really easy with, with this theology to be really angry at the world like a lot of us are in an unhealthy way that needs to be repented of. That's not the way of Jesus. You know, we can hear something like this and be like, yeah, man, those sinners. I love the cross. I'm a friend of the cross. They're enemies of the cross. Enemies. We're like, yeah, enemies. Got a lot of enemies in this life. Those enemies of the cross. Can I remind you of what Paul says? He says, I'm telling you this. Notice this weeping. Paul doesn't have anger in his heart towards his lost family members, his lost friends, his lost political opposites. He's not looking on, going, man, they're enemies of the cross. Yeah, and it's, it's like so popular today in the church. I think because, and I get it, I get it, okay? Um, everything's so PC, and everybody's afraid to offend. So, we're the Christians, we're like, yeah, but we have the truth, man. We're not afraid to say it. Offensive, you know? And we like, it's like we love being offensive. I'm on the offense, man, you know? I'm offensive. But notice Paul here. Paul has a combination between both hard truth and a tender heart. This is important. This is so important, okay? There's a tendency, I think, to have one or the other, one without the other. A lot of us, we just have tender hearts. Well, you know, God bless you. Whatever, you know, you'll get, you'll figure it out. Is, is, are you saved? It doesn't. I mean, only God can judge you. Aw, okay. And there's a tendency to like have a tender heart, but to hold back what, what people desperately need to hear the truth of the gospel. And so maybe you you can acknowledge you tend to find yourself on kind of a soft heart size. Uh, But you also need to be empowered with God's spirit to to be bold because that's the best way to love someone is to tell them the truth in love. But then there's this other flip side of it where it's like you're all about the hard truth, but there's no tender heart. And you need to see Paul here. We need to see Jesus himself that when he saw the multitude, he had compassion over them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. When, when Paul saw and when Jesus saw the enemies of the cross, those that were lost, he looked on at them and his heart broke for them. It's in Romans 12, Paul talks, talks about how he carries, Paul carried all the time with him in his heart. He carried this grief about those that, were, that didn't know the Lord, about those that were rejecting the cross. And I want to say like you only have so much capacity, by the way, to care about things. How many times have I talked about this, right? The capacity to care. If within your heart there is not this care and concern and grief for the lost, you're overrunning your capacity and you don't have enough room in your heart for God to burden you for the things he would desire. Imagine how effective the church could be if we were just as concerned for the lost as we were for political policy. I'm not saying either or. But I'm saying, is there also within us a passion and a concern and a grief for those who don't know the Lord? Uh, Lastly, Paul gives these descriptors. It's interesting. He gives these descriptors of this kind of person that we should grieve over. And this is the course in life of someone who's an enemy of the cross. They're not a friend of the cross, cross cross-based identity, cross-based lifestyle. He says they're going the opposite way, the popular way. And he gives us some descriptors. He says, first, their end is destruction. It's a contrast here uh, in verse 20 and 21, the same Greek word telios, and the completion of a believer, of a follower of Jesus is resurrection. That's our future. Your future, it's not some disembodied state, bye-bye pie in the sky with an angel, little baby angel with a harp, okay? Your future as a follower of Jesus is resurrection, A whole new mode of physicality resurrected through Jesus. It's life and life eternal, the way that God intended to be. The contrast of that is someone who's not walking in the way of Jesus. Their end, he says, is destruction. This is echoed all throughout the scriptures. Proverbs 16 says that there's a way that seems right to a man. Well, it seems like the right way. I don't need God to help navigate me. This just seems right. I mean, if culture's agreeing, it must be the right way. Okay, and we need to understand that things aren't always as they seem. The course you're on right now, it may not be exactly as you seem it is. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in destruction. That's the end. And, and usually that end has a preview to it in its life. I don't think you need me to preach to you about how sin destroys how it destroys, you can go back to the Garden of Eden, it destroys relationship with God. Sin destroys relationship between man. It destroys man's relationship with creation. Sin destroys self. It's this destructive path. It says the second descriptor is, it says that their God, the person on this destructive path, their God, notice this, is their belly. The enemy of the cross, whose God is their belly. Now, the word belly there, it's, it's the word Belly. Like belly, we all got a belly. All right, um, I got more than I want, but um, the the word there it's a it's a euphemism in that culture for bodily appetite. He's not just talking about you know when Chipotle calls. All right, at 10:30 last night. All right, uh, he's he's talking about a lifestyle that is enslaved to bodily appetites. So the, the idea here in that culture, it, it spoke of food, it spoke of drink, and it spoke of sexual desire. All right, Three things, let me say this, that are designed by God and good in its proper use. But it's like anything that God has created. Good things that become God things that get used in a way that's in disobedience to God's plan for that created gift becomes a destructive thing. And and Paul says this is a characteristic of someone who's walking opposite of the cross. Their God is their belly. They are servants and slaves of their appetite. And again, having an appetite is a natural God-given thing. But the question I would ask you today is... um, Is there any patterns of indulgence in your life? Are there any desires that you are enslaved to every time you crave that sexual temptation, every time you crave that comfort food, every time you crave that alcohol to help you forget what you're going through? Is it possible that you're stuck in idolatry? Is it possible that that craving has become your God? And if so, here's good news. You can repent. And you can acknowledge, which I know you do, this is a lousy God. This is a God that takes, that gives me something in the moment, but then takes everything in the end. Compared to Jesus who gave up everything to give you everything in the end. A much better Lord, a much better Savior. So rather than serve our bodies as God. The goal as a Christian is to serve God with my body and to say, Lord, what are you calling me to do? How am I called to steward these gifts? Whose glory is in their shame. Now, this is an interesting descriptor of this culture. They are glorifying what's shameful, Paul says. So not only are they enslaved to their bodily appetites, but they are those that instead of being ashamed of what's sinful, they're celebrating it. Their glory is in their shame. Instead of their shame being in their shame, instead of saying this is an offense to a holy God, instead of saying this is wicked and sinful, they're glorifying that kind of behavior. It says that they set, the descriptor, they set their mind on earthly things. This is kind of where Paul wraps it all up. Uh, at the end of the day, they are, uh, they are practicers of Epicureanism. Epicurus taught that pleasure is the highest good in life. He was a Greek philosopher. That pleasure, the human appetite, is the source and the pathway to true salvation. The more, the, And we say that in our culture too, right? We have our own version of eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. It's materialism. It's secularism. Their mind is set on earthly things. There's no, there's no acknowledgement of eternity. There's no acknowledgement, not just of like, where am I going to go, but what kind of legacy are you living? What's your life going to matter for? Are you just set for earthly things? Are you just living for today because that's all you have and YOLO, right? That's not cool anymore. It used to be. But, But Paul is talking about a kind of posture and a kind of pathway in life that is driven by an earthly mindset. But notice what Paul says. This is beautiful. He says, but us as Christians, look at this. Our citizenship is in heaven. You see the contrast? Someone who's just living enslaved to the things of this world has their mind set on earthly things. But as a Christian, we're called to walk in the way of heavenly citizenship. If I'm a citizen of heaven... If I have eternity in my future, if this is not my home, but heaven is, and I have a mission from that home base, and if I'm here as an ambassador, and if I'm here for an eternal purpose, why would I waste my time living for earthly things? Why would I be caught up in just filling my pleasure bin as much as I can? How satisfied physically can I be? Paul is, is at the same time that he's writing Philippians, he's also writing Colossians. And I I imagine they were like a couple days later, because in Colossians 3, the same time he's writing Philippians, Paul says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, So I love this. If then you were raised with Christ. In other words, you are. Maybe it could be better translated, since then. You are new in Jesus. Since then, you're no, not, you're no longer just a creature of earth, but a citizen of heaven and eternity. Get your mind off of earthly things and set your mind on heavenly things. Set your mind on things above. How is your mindset? How is it affecting your life? How is it affecting your course? Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Now, I want to point out that when Paul is saying this idea that our citizenship is in heaven, He's not giving a Christian an out. Like, here's how you escape earth. Okay, you're not a citizen of earth. You're a citizen of heaven. So do your best for your time here. Find a nice little Christian subculture. Get all cozy in it. All right, don't leave the bubble. You're not here on earth, okay? All right, you're, you gotta just, as long as you can just survive the earth, you're a citizen of heaven. And a lot of people have really wrongly misinterpreted this idea to become this like escapist Christianity that's anti-biblical. And so you have today in secularism, you have these, these phrases about Christians that they are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Like the, the, the secular world looks on at how the church has adopted this idea in such a way they go, Christians are such citizens of heaven that they are trash, could use another word, are garbage at being citizens of earth. When the, the, the opposite should be true. Paul is not giving us this escapist mentality. In fact, those that he's writing to in Philippi, they knew exactly what it meant to be a citizen of another nation. They were Philippians. And as Philippians, they were Roman citizens in Greece. Philippi, remember this, was a what? Roman colony, remember? It was a Roman colony. It was a place in Greece that was like, you know, home away from home. Well, Philippi was Rome away from Rome, okay? Like you would go there and everything was, it was Greek But it was it was a Greek land, but it was Roman. Roman architecture, Roman statues, and and the job of a Philippian was to Romanize the culture, to do everything possible to make Philippi feel and look like Rome. That was the ultimate goal. So when Paul is saying this to the Philippians, what they're understanding Paul saying is: Listen, your job as Christians is to heavenize. Philippi. I put it this way. We're going to heavenize South Florida, okay? It's not I'm going to escape my context because it's so carnal and everyone's an enemy of God. It's like, no, you are empowered and equipped with the message of Jesus. And you are a citizen of heaven. Your life, your perspective, it doesn't have to be dictated by what's happening here on earth. You get to live in such a way that your neighbors, your co-workers... Your, your, your colleagues, everyone who you do life with, they get to experience the culture of heaven through you. It's not escape. It's you're equipped to bring heaven wherever you are. Amen? So a question, how are you walking? That was so cute. How are you walking? What's the course of your life, and what does it look like for you to continue to walk in the way of Jesus? I'm going to invite the band to come out um, as we close out. And what I want us to do... Um, as we, we close out with a song that's going to lead us to think about resurrection, to think about Jesus and what he's done, is I want you to take a minute here in this this, this five-minute moment that we're closing with, and I want to challenge you, as I am doing right now and I have done as I've prepared this talk, I, I want to challenge you to do some introspection. You know, Jesus is your say he's your co-pilot. I know that's a bumper sticker, I think, right? But Jesus is riding shotgun. He, he knows the course of your life better than you do. He knows the decisions you're making. He knows where you're going. I want, you, I want you to know this. He sees you as a beloved child of God. His heart towards you is that of a shepherd who, when their sheep start to wander, their mission is not to rebuke the sheep, but to course correct the sheep. And so here's a moment for us to acknowledge that Jesus is with me. Maybe I haven't been actively with him, but he's with you. Maybe you're like, I can't even see him. I can't even identify him in my life right now. Here's what you can rest in. He sees you. He knows you. He's been watching you. He loves you. And he knows even where you've gone. And how off track you might be. And so here's a time where we get to do this. We just get to say, Jesus, reveal to me how I have feared from you. Show me the ways that I've been walking. And then you stop and you say, Jesus, thank you for going to the cross for those sins. Thank you for going the way, walking the way of Calvary's cross. So that no matter how off track I get, I can look at the cross, I can come back to the cross and remember that though I might not have God, God has me. And then we say this, Jesus, would you course correct me? Would you bring me back to your way? Would you bring me back? Maybe for some of you, you've been living the way of passive discipleship. Just kind of like going to church every now, like doing the Christian game. But it's time to say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to actively pursue you. Maybe for for some of you, it's, I need to come back to the cross. I I need to come back to a cross-centered life. I need to get my passion back. And others, maybe it's, you've been trapped with an earthly mindset. You've been walking with your mindset on earthly things. And you say this, Jesus, set my mind back on my heavenly citizenship. So, a moment to do that, a moment of repentance, You're in good company here. If you have wandered, you're part of the fellowship of wanderers who all have a good shepherd. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out SolaceChurch.com.